The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Good morning. As uh, if you're regular to this Tuesday morning sitting, you probably know that Andrea is uh, away. She's on the East Coast uh, teaching a long retreat. And I'll be here for the next four weeks. Um, and it's nice to sit here in the morning. There's something about the morning sounds are, are different from the, <laughs> the evening sounds. The, the leaf blower and the, you know, the trucks, the train. This is a poem that might might be relevant. It's called Some Days. Some days you have to turn off the news and listen to the bird or truck or the neighbor screaming out her life. You have to close all the books and open all the windows so that whatever swirls inside can leave and whatever flutters against the glass can enter. Some days you have to unplug the phone and step out to the porch and rock all afternoon and allow the sun to tell you what to do. The whole day has to lie ahead of you like railroad tracks that drift off into gravel. Some days you have to walk down the wooden staircase through the evening fog to the river where the peach roses are closing. Sit on the grassy bank and wait for the two geese. We have our own version of geese. One of the nice things about meditating in the morning is that it has the potential to shift our day, you know, or shift our perspective on the day. I remember earlier in my practice when I was uh, sitting quite early in the morning, usually around 5 or 5.30, just because that was when it worked, worked for my schedule. Um, I realized that it shifted things about one millimeter, <laughs> you know, but that was enough. There was something about that shift that um, some willingness in some way to sort of let the day happen to me rather than being so, so assertive or so, you know, so, so much of putting my will on, on the day. Um, so, so the, the topic that I wanted to talk about today and for the next few weeks is this, um, is this, expression 
of things as they are. Things, things as they are, sometimes translated as thi- things as they really are, things as they truly are. Uh, in the Pali, there, uh, the term is yata bhuta, and often it's, it's paired with yata bhuta jnana dasana. Jnana dasana is knowledge and vision, and yata bhuta is things as they are. So knowledge and vision of things as they are. And um, in a way, this, this topic is, is usually discussed in the context of longer meditation retreats. And it, it's, it's talked about quite a lot in monasteries in Asia. And maybe it's just my perception, but I don't feel like it's talked about so much in, in Western um, Dharma circles. It is, it is, but um, one of the one of the interesting things about um, one of the wonderful things about how mindfulness has come into the larger culture is that um, the many of the benefits and blessings of of mindfulness are are becoming more widely appreciated, known, understood, um, and, and that's, that's wonderful. And it's, you know, and it, and it's, in a way it's so obvious. It's like, you know, if I'm more present, I'm more available, I'm more aware, um, my life will go better. I'll, I'll, appreciate my life more, the mind will be more calm, um, all true and all, all, all great things. Um, and then what's, what's offered here, you know, it's offered in this sort of lineage of meditation and this lineage of, 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 of Dharma, of, of Buddhist practice is I would say maybe taking it a step further. You know, can we go a step further than just a sort of um, some degree of ease, and and which which is not in any way a value judgment on it. You know, there's a place for stress reduction. There's a need for stress reduction, and and. Um, but then the question comes, can we go a step further? What, what would that even look like? And um, so maybe in juxtaposition to this idea of mindfulness as stress reduction or as ease or presence or um, a heightened appreciation of the moment, which are all beautiful things, um, I would say in juxtaposition to that, insight meditation goes one step further. And it's, it's almost in a way that mindfulness practice matures into insight, matures into insight. So the word vipassana is usually translated as insight, clear seeing insight. Okay, so wh- what do we see clearly? What do we have insight into? And then that's where this term comes in. Yata Bhutta Jnana Dasana. 
knowledge and vision, insight into things as they are, things as they really are. And it's said that this is the truth that is sort of the point of insight meditation, the, the reason for, for mindfulness ultimately is to open us to seeing this truth, to seeing this truth of how things are. And, you know, sort of in a nutshell, when we, when we see how things are, when we ex- can accept how things are, um, this in itself, this seeing and this acceptance unlocks freedom. It, 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 this seeing truth in itself has the power to, to drain the suffering, drain the clinging, and unlock something, unlock a kind of freedom. Um, when we resist how things are, which is our usual, <laughs> usual mode, um, whether through ignorance or whether through our clinging, this resistance itself is the friction that that creates our suffering. And so, so in a way, that's, that's, that's how I see what we're doing here, what we're aiming is in, it's sort of, It's standing on the shoulders of the kind of um, all the other benefits of mindfulness, you know, and which which are which are real, which are um, important, and it's and it's and it, but in a way, it, it's going beyond them. It's it's the request is to see something so deeply that um, that in and of itself. It, it unlocks the freedom it, that in that in that seeing. So it's not something we do. Um, and it, so, so this is this is the sort of the importance of things as they are. Um, and then, um, of course, in in the in the in the in the Buddhist fashion. Things as they are is broken down into three um, very clear signs, very clear marks. Things as they are is not just this vague, you know, yeah, yeah, you know, that's how things are. They're like this. And there's this very um, crisp teaching that it's almost stunning in a way that it's like, because the proposition, and, and you can see if you agree with it, you can see if it, if, if it resonates with you, if, if you relate to it. But the proposition is that in all of our varied, the vastness of life, the vastness of what can be experienced by a person, uh, in all of the particulars, in all of the manifestations, of experience um, have these universal marks, have these universal characteristics, which are impermanence, um, unsatisfactoriness, and not self. The Pali words being anicca, 
impermanence, dukkha, unsatisfactoriness or, or suffering, and anatta, which is not self. And um, another way of saying it, or a more colloquial way of saying it, is, is very simply that things change, everything changes, we change, and usually this causes, sooner or later, this causes suffering. Um, the interesting thing about the suffering part is that this is the part that seems to be somewhat optional. You know, that things change, we change, and when we cling, when we hold on, when we uh, wish for it to be otherwise, this is what brings suffering. Um, one of the, oh, I hope I have it, one of the uh, great Dharma masters, Oscar Wilde, says, um, Do you know what absinthe is? Absinthe, it's like a kind of alcohol. Yeah. After the first glass of absinthe, abs- absinthe, you see things as you wish they were. After the second, you see them as they are not. Finally, you see things as they really are, and that is the most horrible thing in the world. <laughs> Sorry, I just had to share that. Um, and it, what I like about that is the the truth in this this idea that, or this, you know, the characteristics of uh, impermanence of unsatisfactoriness and of not self are sound, it sounds a little grim, (laughs) you know? And um, I I, I wanna, I'll talk about that in a little bit and and unpack that. But I think, I think that what I like about that quote is, you know, if it were easy to be in complete harmony with things as they are, you know, we would be. You know, if it were easy, if it were, if there weren't part of us that resists that, something very human that wants, um, that wants stability and security where there's change, that wants to find um, satisfaction and happiness in things that, which aren't capable of giving that, which is the dukkha part. And there's a part of us that, that wants to identify. We want to, um, 
we want to find ourself in in things that are not that are not ourself um, or find the personal in what's impersonal and so this is a very human movement of mind and it's this is the cha- i think is the challenging aspect of this teaching of the three characteristics um, So, and the, maybe one of the um, reasons that we need meditation or we need um, this kind of teaching to, to, to open our intellectual understanding and then at some point our experiential understanding is because we tend to misperceive things. You know, the Buddha calls this uh, delusion. Um, this is from the Vipalasa Sutta. Vipalasa means distortion in Pali. Perceiving permanence in the impermanent, pleasant in the painful, and self in the impersonal. And the fourth distortion is to see beauty in what is not beautiful. Beings are injured by wrong views, minds unhinged, and they go mad. You know, so that there's something about um, the medicine of this teaching, of this truth, that works on a few levels. On one, it's, it's maybe it's the level of concepts. It's the level of, intel- of the intellect. You know, to understand that um, as, as one of my teachers says, it's not so much that everything changes, but that everything dies. You know, and that, ooh, that has a little bit of a, little more of a sting. You know, everything dies. Um, and, you know, just to be oriented conceptually around that. And then if, if everything is changing moment by moment, um, what can provide a lasting happiness? What can provide a lasting refuge? You know, the things of the world, um, according to this teaching, cannot. And by things, it not only means my car, my house, my, you know, it also means my relationship, other people, um, the mind itself. I mean, if you've ever um, been close to someone who has uh, a disease like Alzheimer's, you know, it's like even the mind, even our memories are impermanent. Um, So everything's changing. Because everything is changing, um, they're not capable of 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 satisfying in in in, in a lasting way, and um, and then the te- and not self is this sort of 
insubstantiality, this coreless nature, there isn't a permanent self. I can't find a self. The things of the world can't qualify as a self. Um, so, so part of the teaching is to just understand this intellectually. Um, the problem is, with just an intellectual understanding, it, it can feel dreary, it can feel grim, it can feel uh, depressing. And it could actually be an unskillful teaching. If someone is uh, very depressed, to say to them, everything is suffering, <laughs> you know, may not be the most skillful thing to say. If someone is at a place in life where there's a lot of instability in one's life, I just lost my job, or this is changing, or my housing is uncertain, to say, well, it's all impermanent, you know, it's like, may not be, <laughs> you know, may not be that helpful. Um, in the same way, if someone is suffering around questions of identity, questions of boundaries, questions of self, to say, well, there is no self. You know, I mean, it's not, you know, or someone has low uh, self-confidence or self-esteem. It's like, well, there isn't, you know, there, there is no self anyway, you know. It's like, well, that, that's not so, might not be so helpful. Um, and all that's to say that the purpose of these teachings is to free us. It's not to bring us down. It's not to say that the, the world, this world is sort of, is, um, you know, is, is somehow so flawed that we can never be happy in this world. We need to just escape. Um, that's not the message. And in fact, it's quite the opposite. It's that, um, Reality is all around us. Things as they are. There's nothing other than things as they are. You know, it's almost like sometimes the most obvious thing is the hardest thing to see because a fish can't see the water, supposedly. A fish doesn't know the water that they swim in because we're, you know, we're just swimming in it. We, that's all we, that's all there is. There's no place that we look that that's not it. That's not impermanent. That's not unsatisfactory in this way. That's not ourselves. So it's all around us. And in, and in a way, it's like, this is good news because we don't have to escape. We don't have to find some more rarefied plane of being. We don't have to unlock some secret teaching that will you know, it's like the request of practice is to open to what's already here so fully and with so much acceptance that the mind, the heart is able to let go and is able to let go not out of this life, but it's able to let go fully into it. And when we let go fully into it, no impermanence doesn't change and no, um, the insubstantiality or the coreless nature of, of the impersonal nature of, of not-self doesn't change. But what changes maybe is this dimension of suffering. And then we're not, because we're seeing 
how things are. We're, we're in accord with how things are. That there isn't that friction. There isn't that, there isn't that, um, and, and what's re- that friction is replaced by peace. Friction is replaced by peace. So there's a chant that expresses this that um, is, I think, is very well known in Southeast Asia because it's quite common at, to be chanted at funerals. But I think it so encapsulates this practice. And the translation is, um, all conditioned things are impermanent. They arise and they pass away. To be in harmony with this truth is the greatest happiness. Or to bring this truth to peace, to come to peace with this truth of impermanence itself is the greatest happiness. Um, so it, it's not about escaping to something that is permanent, but rather, um, you know, it's, it's in the seeing, in the opening to the impermanence, in the impermanence. Um, so in the Dhammapada, all conditioned things are impermanent. When one sees this with wisdom, one turns away from suffering. This is the path to purification. All conditioned things are unsatisfactory. When one sees this with wisdom, one turns away from suffering. This is the path to purification. All things are not self. When one sees this with wisdom, one turns away from suffering. This is the path to purification. So I just want to say a little bit about, so in the next three um, talks, what I thought was to go into each one of these, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and not-self, and to, to explore them um, as, as doorways to freedom, as there really are these gems. I mean, it may, you know, if in an intellectual way, you say, yeah, yeah, you know, everything changes, you know, okay. So we, you know, we sort of know that. But there's also a part of us that doesn't, you know, that just doesn't, there's, I couldn't find it, but there's one quote that says, I think it's, I don't know if it's Albert Einstein or Mark Twain or someone, someone who's quoted a lot. They say, the most amazing thing about human beings is that we see death all around us and yet feel that I will, I will never die. You know, this kind of, um, so to explore these characteristics um, in detail, that's, that's sort of the idea for the next three talks. And, but what I wanted to say today is a little bit about how to practice with these or how they sort of can function in our practice. Um, so impermanence, 
unsatisfactoriness, not self, are considered to be the core insights for insight meditation. You know, so these are the insights. And so in one way, they're not really something that we need to do or need to think about, but it's that through the just steady practice of mindfulness, the steady practice of awareness, over time, it's kind of amazing that at some point these, this dimension, these elements of our experience start to stand out in relief. It's almost like those 3D magic, you know those magic pictures that you look at them and then you just kind of just keep looking and keep looking and keep looking and then all of a sudden it's boom, something pops out. And it's very interesting that so, so that's the sort of classic way that they operate. We, we just practice our mindfulness, do our mindfulness, and then at some point, the impermanent characteristic, the fact that things are changing, starts to become the predominant um, mark of, of, of our experience. It starts to become the predominant way we're seeing things. And in the same way, uh, the dukkha aspect, the, the, the unsatisfactoriness or the suffering aspect, it's like we really start to feel so deeply and see so clearly that there's almost like a relentlessness to it. Things are just pleasant, and then they're unpleasant, and then they're pleasant, and then they're unpleasant, and they're pleasant, and they're unpleasant. And there's something about that that starts to actually, there's a, I, I know in my experience at, at certain times, there's almost like a visceral distaste for that. It's like, no, not more of that. Of, you know, it's like, oh. um, And in the same way, this not self, it's that, it's that there's this very impersonal quality. It's almost like it's the very opposite of, taking things so personally, um, if that makes sense. And um, so, so, so these are characteristics that just begin to stand out in our practice. And then in, in another way, um, these can be practices themselves that we take on. It's like there can be, and maybe in the, in the, next, in the next classes, um, I'll offer guided meditation, you know, that there's a way that we can tune in to impermanence, tune in to the coming and going, the, 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 the flux of experience. Um, is there a way that we can tune in to the dukkha element, the, the suffering or the unsatisfying nature of experience or, or the impersonal nature. So those, those are also practices that we can take on. Um, and, and so the, the final thing I want to say is, and, th- and this is, Gil has a very nice way of, of, of teaching this and of pairing these three characteristics with what he calls them, their opposites. And, and the idea is that while intellectually understanding these 
things as they are, you know, these, these characteristics, is somewhat straightforward. Um, for the mind to open to these, it takes a lot of support in the mind. It takes a lot of uh, cultivating and developing, you know, all the qualities of the path. You know, the, the mindfulness, for sure, the stability, the concentration, the qualities of investigation, of, of open-heartedness, of loving-kindness, of, of compassion, of joy. These are all the qualities that meditation cultivates. And it's through cultivating these qualities that brings the mind, that brings experience to a certain kind of pitch where we're able to see this truth and open to it in a way. So it's like, and it sort of makes sense. It's like when there's a lot of agitation and um, sort of uh, contraction in the mind, I tend to take things really personally, you know? And someone cuts me off on the highway and it's not like, oh, you know, okay, they might be having a, they might be late for something. And, you know, it's like, you know, (laughs) they're doing it to me. (laughs) They're really doing it to me. Or it's like when there's a lot of agitation in the mind, it's like things take on a kind of solidity. It's like almost the opposite of impermanence. It's like, things will always be this way. My problems will always be like this. That person will always, you know, it's like this, something, something sort of hardens in our experience. Um, so there's this way of cultivating or of pairing these characteristics with their opposites. So it turns out that in order to see impermanence, it's very important and it's very helpful for the mind itself, for the awareness itself, to have a kind of stability, to have a kind of stillness. The more still the mind is, the more the mind can perceive change, the more the mind can perceive impermanence. The more my mind is moving and is caught up and is restless and is agitated, the less, the, the more, the more things seem solid and permanent. And, you know, and, and just to explore this, if, you know, if this, if this resonates for you. So that's impermanence. For, for dukkha, for um, this opening to this quality of things as they are that is unsatisfying. Um, it turns out that it's very helpful for us to cultivate a kind of well-being, actually, a kind of happiness in the being, a sense of well-being, a sense of of ease, a, a certain kind of pleasure and happiness. And the more we cultivate that, the more we cultivate that joy, that sukha, happiness in Pali is sukha, the more we cultivate that sukha, the more we can open to the dukkha. And you know, it seems like, well, you know, why? Or, but it's, but it's that, you know, it's that we're more 
we can hold more of it. I mean, sort of the way I understand this is that um, it's almost like if we're talking to someone who is in distress, who's suffering, so you might even think of my children, you know, like they're, if they're grouchy, if they're um, irritated and they're hungry and they're, or they're fighting with each other and it's like, If I myself am <laughs> also grouchy, <laughs> also hungry, also running late, that conversation's not going to go well. You know, I have less capacity to be with their suffering. We're going to be late. Just eat your breakfast. Just get on your, you know, it's, you know, it's like. But if I'm coming at it from a place of well-being, of spaciousness, I've just meditated, or maybe it was just having the sort of presence of mind to take a deep breath. That well-being creates the container and creates the capacity to hold the suffering and to hold and to see it in a different way. And it's like, oh, okay, okay. But just, you know, that's just how it is right now. We're just, you know, and, and, and it, gives, it gives more space and more, um, more generousness of heart to be with that suffering. And then in the same way, so, so we cultivate stability and stillness to see change. We cultivate a kind of inner, inner well-being to hold the dukkha, to hold the suffering. And then, um, and this is sort of the, the paradox of we cultivate this sort of, in one sense, this strong sense of self or this strong sense of, um, by self, I'm using it in the, in the way that kind of means a strong confidence, a strong sense, you know, in the, maybe this would be the sort of healthy psychological self or self, self-esteem, self-confidence. We cultivate this con- confidence which allows us to open to not-self, which allows us to open to the truth of the impersonal nature of things. Um, There's this expression which you might have heard, you have to be somebody before you can be nobody. (laughs) You know, this is kind of a popular expression, I think in the early days of Dharma in the West. And I think there's some there's something true to that of like if a person is already our sense of identity and self is extremely fragile and extremely fragmented and there isn't a, a kind of um, a stable kind of well-being in the self then opening to the impersonal open it can be very um, disorienting, you know, maybe in not such a healthy way. <coughs> but when we can open to, but when, when we have uh, some degree of, 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 st- of confidence, of, of a sense of self, um, 
paradoxically, that helps us to open to not-self. So, so, the, so these are the three characteristics that, 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 um, that are the doors that, you know, according to this teaching, these, this, this impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, not self, are the doors to um, to letting go. It's like, you know, there's something in, in, in really seeing these, really opening to them, that is really good news, that, 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 the, that enables this release of the heart. Um, and I guess, you know, I, I just want to end on a note of... Um, of sort of optimism in a way, you know, is that, I mean, uh, that, that it's sort of like when we, when we really see that the keys to practice are opening to and accepting who and what we already are, you know, it's closer than our, um, it's closer than the inside of our eyelids, <laughs> you know, is, this is what we are. And it's really, but in opening to that is, is, what, is what sort of unlocks the whole thing. So we don't have to go very far. Um, and, and, and it's really, you know, I didn't talk about this so much, but really this quality of mindfulness with acceptance, with this, with this acceptance that comes from seeing it over and over and over again, that, you know, it's like that, that changes something, that, that releases something. Um, okay, I, I hope that wasn't too abstract or um, heady. Um, and then in the next, you know, in the, in the next talks to, 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 to really unpack and to go into these um, into these qualities, these three characteristics. Um, I'll just end with this, uh, this from the Buddha. Whether Tathagatas, which is like Buddhas, arise in the world or not, it still remains a fact, a firm and necessary condition of existence that all formations all experience is impermanent. All formations are subject to suffering and that all things are not self. A Tathagata fully awakens to this fact and penetrates it. Having fully awakened to it and penetrates it, he announces it, teaches it, makes it known, presents it, discloses it, analyzes it, and explains it, that all formations are impermanent. All formations are subject to suffering that all things are not self. So, okay. thank you very much. Thank you for your attention. And we have a few minutes if there's any questions.
The most confusing characteristics are, is that all things are not self. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. I, I think you'll probably explore it in the future. Yeah, just yeah. Just to um, repeat the question, uh, the, mo- the most confusing part for you is that all things are not self. Yeah, this is the, this is the one where we usually get sort of hung up on or caught on. And... Um, yeah, we'll go into it in, in more detail. Um, but just to, um, just very briefly, um, the idea is that um, nothing within my experience, nothing that can be experienced is able to um, qualify as a lasting permanent self. And if you just think about what are the things that we take to be myself, well, you know, my body, you know, would be one thing. And then we kind of know, it's like, well, okay, if you lose an arm, are you, is, are you, is that still yourself? You say, well, yeah, you know. I mean, at what, at what point is my body, you know, at some point we start to see, okay, my body is not myself. Um, but then we might say, okay, well, okay, I, I sort of get that my body is not myself, but surely it's my thoughts, my memories, my ideas, my... Um, my awareness, that's myself. And, you know, so systematically there are ways that the Buddha goes through and shows, no, all of these are impermanent. All of these are not personal to, to you. And um, and, and interestingly, in, in this formation of the, you know, it says all formations are impermanent. All formations are suffering. And then it changes to be all dhammas, which translates things. All dhammas are not self. Meaning even, so all conditioned things are impermanent, but even the unconditioned, the so-called unconditioned, is also not self. Um... um some some Buddhist teachers or traditions sort of turn that or they say, well, yes, all things are not self. Or you can say, everything is self. You know, it's like, um, you know, that's sort of like the other way of, uh, of saying, and it's, it's sort of like everything is me, everything is. And then some some people, you know, it's possible to have that sort of insight into practice when you look at a tree or something that's me you know that's me and you, you know that's me so that's sort of the positive way of saying it um and and we'll, and we'll talk about it more but yeah. okay. okay on the on the um the permanence and everything nothing is permanent what and some formations what about the formation of love, of that, the, it, the formation of, like, wouldn't love be permanent? Or the, and 
okay, so that's kind of abstract. And then I'm thinking, what about something like the formation of adoptedness, like a family formation of one person being adopted into another family? That is that happened and it's permanent in in a karmic way, even like it. That so I don't know. I'm just thinking uh, of examples of formations that are permanent. They always will be because they are, it, yeah. it, excluding death, obviously. <laughs> like yeah, that makes everything not permanent. But love would be, have will always, if it was created, yeah. it will always be, right? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. No, it's be- beautiful, beautiful question. I mean, um, one time I asked a, t- a Zen teacher in Japan. I said. Um, if everything is changing, if everything is impermanent, what is, what is, what is, you know, I came for something like, what is the one thing that doesn't change? And he looked at me and he said, impermanence. (laughs) You know, It's like um, there are many ways of sort of um, sort of slicing and dicing experience, and, to the, and and this teaching of impermanence is sort of asking us to look at whatever can be known, whatever can be felt, including, you know. Emotions like love, or, 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 you know, is is to sort of see see this aspect of it, see the impermanent aspect of it. So when you say love is permanent, um, you know, f- from this point of view, it would be even even something that might. I, I'm not sure which which way you're. You, you know, some people usually say like the universe is love, you know, and like when everything falls away and there's no concepts, and there's no clinging, there's no attachment. All that's left is just love, you know. Um, from the point of view of this teaching, that itself is a concept. You know that itself is also something that you know, as a concept, you know, is impermanent. Is something extra that's sort of added, um, which is not to say that. I think I think the very important point that 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 I that you I take from your question is that we can't even though things are impermanent, it doesn't mean we can ignore them. <laughs> or it doesn't mean they don't matter, or it doesn't mean they're not, you know, if like, if you say to a Zen teacher, um, there is no such thing as the body, because ultimately it's impermanent, then the teacher will reach out and smack you. <laughs> and they're like, they say, did you feel that? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Okay, so there's also wa- there's still a body, so it's like there, there's a famous um, Zen koan that, and maybe we'll, we'll end on this. But the, there's a famous Zen koan that says, does, "Does is an enlightened being free from karma? Is an enlightened being free from karma?" 
And the monk said yes, and then was reborn as a, as a you know, toad for 500 lifetimes or something. And, and according to the story, the correct answer is, so the question is, is an enlightened being free from karma? So, which is another way of saying, is an enlightened being free from the laws of cause and effect, free from the laws of, you know, of uh, dukkha and impermanence, and 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 the and the the answer that freed this person from a five hundred lifetimes of being reborn as a as a fox or a toad. Or says, an enlightened being does not ignore karma. The enlightened being does not ignore karma. So, um, it's like, that's sort of like what we were say, you know, saying about, yes, everything is impermanent, and um, that's one side of things. And then the other side is everything is exactly what it is. And everything has its own value, you know. So we don't say, well, your suffering doesn't matter because it's impermanent and you're impermanent too. And what's the, you know, what's, you know, who cares? You know, that's, that's delusion. That's falling into one side of things. And it's, and it's very interesting when we really awaken to impermanence on a deep level then it's not so much that, yeah, people don't matter because we're all impermanent. It's like, no, it's the preciousness of life. And it matters that much more. You know, it's um, the, the sacredness of, of and the, the sort of magic of appearance. You know, it's like, how amazing that beings come into this world, hang around for a certain amount of time, and then pass away from this world. And that's sort of, you know, that's, that's the magic of it. That's the, um, and the impermanence is inseparable from that magic, you know, so. I was just going to say, it's like what you said about fish doesn't know the water through which it swims. If you become a fish that is aware of the water through which it swims, it, it almost makes it, it's a, amazing to be in the water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. How, so, Yeah. That's the, right, that's the, then, it, then it's like we're just, every, every moment is sacred. Every moment is, we're just bowing to life. And I say, yeah, 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 thank you. Okay, and so we'll, oh, you, um, Hi, yeah, uh, I, as I'm studying in permanence, I certainly don't take for granted the moments with the people that I love. But I don't know if I was so wise last night, and I know that it it came from a, uh, I hope, uh, a kind heart. But a man said to me last night at my work, healthcare is my work, with incredible ease and insight. Um, uh, he said, you know, I have a terminal disease, and certainly I knew what his diagnosis was. And he said, you know, I'm dying. And I said, we all are. Yeah. yeah, and um, and, it, and it wasn't meant to not appreciate his insight, but that's we all are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and how was how did he? He, um, 
you get it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Beautiful. Yeah, yeah. And it, and I appreciate sort of what you're pointing at. It's like there's, there's a way. Impermanence is such a strong truth that there's a way to, of using it that really opens us. And there's also a way of using it that, you know, that sort of closes things. And it's sort of, it takes wisdom to know. Um, there's, a, there's a great story of one, I mean, it's sort of the other side of this, of the one Zen teacher who was dying and then one of his students said, like, I'm going to miss you. And then the, the dying teacher looked at him and said, where are you going? <laughs> you know, kind of... <laughs> Of this, you know, we're we're all um, it's we're we're all of this nature of impermanence, and then it's and it's and it's more visceral, maybe, and more real, and we're closer to it. Some of us, in some times, than others, and so, um, but it's yeah, it's thank you, yeah, it's this universal truth, and so. Um, we're all going in the same direction and there's something about that that doesn't that maybe can make it seem less you know this is your problem and we're you know bye we're kind of at the platform and you're taking off in this train and it's like we're actually all you know I don't think I would have acknowledged if, if he hadn't had such insight and peace with his death and dying yeah, yeah 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 Oh, beautiful. The, the, the openness, the acceptance of impermanence brings peace. It brings us peace. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much.